Morning, church. Good morning. I trust you're enjoying God today. That is what it's all about, isn't it? Enjoy God. For how long? Forever. Forever. And while we're doing that, we're glorifying Him. When we enjoy Him, that's the way we uh, show that we uh, are glorifying Him. We have before us today one of the most staggering, astonishing, amazing glimpses of the glory of Jesus Christ that we will find in all of Scripture. So, uh, stay tuned. There is something here that is just uh, dazzling. It's a dazzling display that Christ puts on. It's absolutely brilliant and radiant. He gave it to Peter, James, and John. Something that uh, people hadn't experienced before in this way. And it would be something that these guys would never forget. And of course, some of them wrote about it. This transfiguration, also, I want you to realize this, that God is gracious. Did you know that? (laughs) Well, He's very gracious in showing Himself, this transfiguration, um, because just recently He had told His disciples what? That He would have to die. Suffer and die. Be buried. And then be raised again. And then on the heels of that, after Peter had given that great confession, we know that that's that's what Jesus had done. Then he said, okay, listen, I'm going to have to die. And Peter then did what? Oh, no, you don't have to die. you know. And, and uh, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Well, following that part, then he brought on the aspect that there is the cost of discipleship. If you want to follow Christ, if you're truly of His, It's going to mean death. Death to yourself. Take up the cross. They knew what the cross was. Forget yourself. Take up the cross. Follow Me. We're we're to be followers. We're to be disciples. That means we are to be obedient to Him. We don't have a choice. We are to be obedient to Him. It's not that we have options. He commands us for that. And, And that means suffering. It means dying to self all day long, every day. See, there was a death coming for Christ. There's a death also to His people as they are to take up their crosses and suffer also. Okay, they're confused. They're depressed. They've just been giving uh, some information that they haven't been thinking on. This is an entirely different type of thought. And Jesus comes along after bringing this news to them and He balances it here with a positive reality. That's what's so great about where this is placed at. Why is it at where it's at? Why does He take them up on this mountain? He gives a glimpse of glory to encourage them and He's going to demonstrate what it will be like when He comes back in His full glory to set that kingdom up in full blazing glory. That is how good God is. He doesn't have to show them that. He could have just said, you're going to have to suffer and die. As I suffer and die, you too are going to have to suffer and die. Well, that's true. He said that. And then, it's not like He just puts it in words, but He gives them something to see. In reality, it's not just a vision. He moves their faith to sight. Isn't that a good God? And so he, he manifests himself in this bright, glorious image and he, as he moves their faith to anchor them in some confidence because they're really feeling low and depressed. As a matter of fact, they go to sleep up on the mountain before they see this great, glorious appearance. There will be glory after the suffering. That's what he's showing them here. They don't have to wait until his second coming. They're going. Some of them are going to see this. So it's a visible revelation. The nature of Christ. The nature of Christ is seen by them visually. They actually see with their eyes that He is God. Now, that's an amazing thing. So, you know, they just haven't understood this. And they're not even going to understand what they just experienced. There's a, but there's a theological reflection for their lives later on. Later on, they will understand it. They will get it. They will write about it. They teach us today. 
the reality of the glory of the Lord. So the encouragement remains 2,000 years later for us. For us today, we have encouragement. After we've seen the cost of discipleship, I've been talking about that, and then we come into this part just to remind us. Good to know. What a great God. So just like they stood on the top of that mountain, we too want to stand there on the top of the mountain with Jesus Christ. Are you there with Him? Right? Let's uh, turn our Bibles to Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 1, starting a brand new chapter here. Good place to start. We're going to read 13 verses. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John, brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and He was transfigured before them. And His garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launder on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer. For they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked Him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And He said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things, and yet how is it written of the Son of Man that He will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Let's pray. Father, as we come humbly to Your Word, humbly and boldly before Your throne, give us insight to this passage. It's a glorious passage. Thank You for letting it be there. For it gives us all great hope and great encouragement to know that one day we will see Jesus Christ as He is in all of His glory. And we too will be in glory. Thank You for Your Word. May Your Holy Spirit guide us and may we get understanding that will bring joy to our hearts. Amen. Amen. Are you ready for the brilliant radiance of Jesus' glory? One day you'll see it. Trust in Him. Well, we move in right into verse 1. He's saying to them, okay, he's talking about cost of discipleship. He's talking about judgment for the ones that who don't trust in Him. And He'll be ashamed of them when He comes back. Then He says, truly. And whenever Jesus says truly, that means listen. By the way, even if He doesn't say truly, you better listen just as hard. Because he has something important, doesn't he? But he says, Truly I say to you, this is the words, the very word of Christ. I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. A lot of different versions on what this might be. I'm, I'm going to give you one. And we'll move on. We don't have to speculate. I'll just give you my idea. It doesn't have to be that way. It's okay. Um, but just to not take too much time up. It's definitely a promise. It's a promise to anybody of any age. Uh, definitely that. There were some of there that, that were the disciples. Namely, Peter, James, and John. Three of them. That would be seeing His glory because the context goes right into the next section. Six days later, guess what? He spoke this. This is a prophecy, a promise, uh, uh, a preview of the kingdom. The kingdom glory. The glory of Jesus Christ. They're not, some of them aren't going to die before they see that very glory of Christ. 
some say this could be the, uh, the kingdom that comes in, in Acts chapter 2. There are other thoughts too, and that's okay. I won't be dogmatic. But I, I, I really favor, because of the text and where we're heading, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. Brought them on a high mountain by themselves. Most commentators that I read, um, they're all in agreement of that. So I feel safe with that. I usually won't give an opinion unless it's backed up by Scripture first and then other people are supporting it. Otherwise, if it's something I'm just throwing out there, it's not worth really anything. <laughs> but this is, I think I think that's probably what's happening. It's okay, move on. Six days later, we're in verse 2, folks. Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And what we have as we as we look at this is that he has a purpose and they've been in Capernaum remember remember Capernaum or uh, no they, they were in Capernaum then they moved up to Caesarea Philippi Caesarea Philippi was the place where Peter made the great confession you remember and you have that cliff there and gates of Hades and all that now, all the scenery that's taking place and they're moving up further and what we're going to say is they're moving up north and uh, about 25 miles we'll get to that in a moment uh, one reason they're going there is that he's going to pray. That's not unlike what Jesus does. And he goes up to a mountain and he does that quite frequently. He goes up to a private place and uh, that looks uh, way up there. I'll explain that in a moment. But the purpose is to pray. If you turn to Luke, we have three Gospels that we're going to be referring to this morning that all parallel Mark um, Mark is one of them, of course. Then Luke, Luke chapter uh, 9, and Matthew chapter 17. In Luke chapter 9, we get this transfiguration. And uh, by the way, we'll read verse 28. He says, Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter, James, and John, went up on the mountain to pray. To pray is the key element there. They, that's why he wants to go there. To pray. Of course, there's something else he has in mind. But to pray. But you'll notice, you can say, wait a minute, eight days, uh-oh. And Mark says six days. And Matthew, I think, says six days. What do we have here? What, what, was Luke wrong? No. They're all right. Why? Because whenever... And, and they did this a lot in Hebrew thought and in their language. And we do it today, too. There were like six days in between. He's not counting the day that they're on. He's not counting the day that it'll be. There's six days as Mark reports. Luke here reports eight days. The day that he's saying that as they get ready. And then later on that day. No problem with that, right? That's not a big deal at all. So if that bothered you, that's why that would be. Look in verse 32. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep but when they were fully awake, they saw His glory and His two men standing with Him asleep. Does this sound familiar? Jesus is praying up on the mountain, up on a hill, and is Peter, James, and John, the apostles, are with Him and they go to sleep. Does that sound familiar? Later on we get that in Gethsemane. Peter, James, and John. And they're trying to pray that they're sleeping. Long day. Long climb up. You saw the mountain there? They, they went up there in those mountains. Uh, took better than probably a better part of a day to get up there. I would have been tired too. So anyway, that's why. But you have Peter, James, and John. He takes them. That's the inner circle of the disciples. That's the first three that are mentioned in all of the list of the apostles. Peter, James, John in that order. Now there is Andrew, and he's part of that first group. There's like about three groups, three sets of fours, if you if you may. But um, also, Peter, James, and John are mentioned um, in the story of Jairus' daughter, who was raised from the dead. Guess who got to be in that room? Peter, James, and John. So he picks certain ones to get a certain privilege and blessings. God can do that. He can do whatever He wants to do. That's not fair to the other guys. Well, He does what He wants to do. And there was a purpose in doing that. Uh, but anyway... Um, we uh, realize that there are there are three of them, and of course, in the Old Testament and the law, it says two or three witnesses. And then later on, we're going to see two or three witnesses again, other than them. But the law says that truth is confirmed in the mouth of two or three witnesses. So there they are. Now we get up to that high mountain part, and it says he took them up on a high mountain. He's going to show some scenery here. And uh, I think it's absolutely gorgeous as you look from a distance. Uh, the 
closer you get up to a mountain, you realize how high it really is. This particular mountain is like about 9,000 plus, 9,200 feet high. And um, uh, the, the, you see the snow-capped mountains? It's that way almost all the time of the year. You know, you might get uh, a quite a bit of melt as summer's there, but it, even if it is totally melted, it won't last very long at all. It'll be there. And I could have shown a lot of uh, sites of present day where they are skiing and they have snow that's really deep. You usually don't think of that being in Israel much, right? Snow, but um, when you're 9,000 feet high, that's a really high mountain. I'm, t- I'm saying Mount Hermon. I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I don't think I'm going too far out. It doesn't say Mount Hermon. But that makes sense. If you will look on the map, Zach has just popped up and that's real timely. If you will look at uh, the Sea of Galilee, you see that right down at the bottom of the screen, right? Mm -hmm. And you go up a little bit further, you'll see Golan Heights. And we all have heard of that before, haven't we? Present day, Golan Heights. You keep going and going. There's a red um, box up there and uh, that's Mount Hermon. And then you'll see Dan over way to the left is Tyre and Sidon. Remember, he had been up there not too long back. And uh, so now he has uh, made the trek with the disciples all the way up to Mount Hermon, about 25 miles in that vicinity. But they've got a long walk as they go up to that mountain now. And as far as the uh, sea level is concerned, it's about 11,000 feet above the Jordan Valley. We are way up there. If you are on top of that mountain... You're looking down, you're seeing a beautiful sight. If you're looking up to the mountain from Jerusalem on a clear day, you can see Mount Hermon. You can see it from Tyre and Sidon, (coughs) Caesarea Philippi, uh, all over. It's a majestic place. Why wouldn't Jesus pick the highest mountain for this to happen? And it's in that area, and most of your commentators will say Mount Hermon, so Dennis is not going out on his own and just saying this. Uh, This is a spectacular scene. And as we see this, we we know that um, this setting is giving them a taste of His creation. There they were. It was like they were in a park in Caesarea Philippi, a beautiful area. And then they go up to Mount Hermon and see that. They're away from everything now, away from everybody. You're not going to see a big crowd 9,000 feet up, are you? And so they're alone. They're on top of the world, it seems like, with Jesus. So that's kind of the thought as we think of this high mountain. And as we go through, you'll see some inserts of some other pictures and scenery as what is going on and what they're looking at as this is happening. Now, um, it said in verse 2, Mark says he's on a high mountain and he is transfigured before them. That's what he says right there in verse 2. He's transfigured. Okay, wow. Couldn't he have gotten a little more elaborate? Well, he will a little bit in verse 3. But he basically just says he's transfigured. And what does that mean, transfigured? If you're reading along, you never read the Bible before, and you're reading that, you go, what? What's going on? What's that mean? Well, the word is, in the Greek, metamorpho, which is metamorphosis uh, in our English. Or meta in the Greek means to change. And morph means form, to change form. And that's what he did. He changed his bodily form. He, it's, in one sense, it's like, you know, inwardly, he's still the very glory of God, and it's always been there, but he's been veiled. Now he's transfigured. It was the outside here that is changed. His appearance changed. His nature doesn't change. It's always been there. Always has. Look in 2 Corinthians 3.18 and you'll see this word used there. That very same word that's in the original Greek. He says in 18, but we all with unveiled face. That's us today. Unveiled face. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. When we look at Scripture, we're looking at the very glory of the Lord. 
Now, we don't see him physically, but we're looking at him inwardly. We're taking an inward view as Jonathan Edwards talked about seeing Jesus Christ. As we see him, we can behold in this mirror of Scripture, the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed. We are being changed. But in this case, it's being changed inwardly, outwardly. The only way we're changing is we're just getting older. And all the things that come along with that. All the benefits, right? <laughs> Go to Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and that word is used again. After doctrine comes what? Practice. Obedience, folks. Bob had in that prayer, and that was just beautiful. It's talking about, um, about that. As the Lord is setting us apart, obeying Him, following Him, the cost of your discipleship, the cost of His death, is your following Him and desiring to be obedient in everything that He tells you to do. Right? Right? Romans 12.2 And do not be conformed to this world, but what? Be transformed, there's our word metamorphe, by the renewing of your mind. Is your mind being renewed every day? So that you may prove what the will of God is. What's the will of God? That you follow Him. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. The will of God. That's what He wants you to do. He wants you to be obedient. To follow Him. Not to sin anymore. What is that? Sanctification. Right? So we're being changed inwardly. So as that's happening, be amazed at His glory because He's doing that, but because He is making you desire to follow Him. Right? Okay. So in Luke 9, and we read that, this transfiguration actually happened at first. It happened when the disciples were sleeping. That's when it when he changed. They woke up and saw this. Can you imagine being asleep and all of a sudden a very, very bright, illuminating light is just cast about the whole area? Would you wake up from that? I believe so, right? Illumination. It's shining in your face because it's His light. We're talking light here. God is light. He's the light of the world, is He not? Well, they woke up in a hurry at that time. And folks, this is not a vision. This is for real. This is truly Jesus standing there in a body that's radiant. Uh, The blazing glory of His divine nature came through this humanity that is there. It hasn't been. It's been veiled. That's why people just took Him as an ordinary man. He looked just like any one of us. Same kind of flesh and everything. And all of a sudden, it's the glory that is blazing here. He pulls the veil of humanity back and all of a sudden, it is like this light that is so brilliant. And of course, Mark tries to describe it. He puts it as good as humans can you know what the whole Bible is an accommodation to us so that we can understand who God is did you know he accommodates to us he gets on our level gives us the word he is so much above us isn't that called transcendent he is so holy that he could just say away with you you can't understand me But no, He gets on our level. And I always say this, I've said it many times, but John Calvin said what? Baby talk. Now this word is so much that we can't understand it all. We've just begun, folks. We have not arrived. We're just learning. We're infants, aren't we? We're infants on this journey. But He gets on our level so that we can understand some things about Him. People who are not Christians can't understand this word. That's why they don't want it unless God opens their eyes. And all of a sudden, you want more. And you want more. Does that, does that happen to you? I can't get enough of the Word of God. We all have that in common, don't we? Well, it gets on our level. This section gives language. 
a language to us that humanity, people like us, we can process and we can get it. A shining face. Dazzling clothes. What does it say here? He's transfigured. Verse 3 says, And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white. What else can we say? As no launderer on earth can whiten them. This is a taste of what the disciples could not fully comprehend. But they do know the light is so dazzling, glorious. I keep saying these words. What else can you say? The veil for a moment, for a short time was lifted. Jesus did something that He had never done on earth before in this body. And His true essence shone through. Folks, this is one of the miracles of all miracles. That Jesus would even be here but then to show this glimpse to human beings, to let them get a glimpse that they'd never forget. In Matthew 17, remember that's a, another gospel parallel. Matthew 17, verse 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. And his garments became as white as light. Now I see a lot of white in here. I'm seeing some Bible pages that are white. Then I see, I see some shirts that are white, pants that are white. The, the light is white. And the blinds are white. And then the uh, walls are gray. You, you start looking around. Oh, here's some white. You know, I'm seeing some things out there that are really, really white. This is really white, isn't it? Right? That can't hold a candle to this white that we're talking about. No launderer, no nobody that had the ability and had the stuff to deal with. No bleacher, you know, uh, not not the football bleachers at the you know the stands. We're talking about one who bleaches <laughs> couldn't get it as bright as this, as nobody could do. As you say, it's as white as light. If you went out into the street right now and looked up and you'd see the sun. You're not supposed to look at it, right? Well, this is the kind of brightness that we're talking about only even more. And it just lit up this mountain. What what kind of scene was this? This had to be tremendous. In Luke 9, verse 2, I keep going on that. I'm, I'm just trying to get us a visual, try to get our experience as, as if it, we, we would have been Peter, James, and John. Or verse 2 says he sent them out to proclaim. Whoop. I think it's 29. I'm sorry. And while he is praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. Face like the sun. White and gleaming. Well, I can think of Revelation chapter 1 where we get a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ. The awesome, blazing glory. Revelation 1, 16. In His right hand He held seven stars and out of His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and His face was like the sun shining in its strength. That is bright. More than white. It's light. John 1.14 John relates about His glory there. John 1 Verse 14. John never forgot about it. Of course, he wrote it in in another place. But here in the Gospel, he says, "...and the Word became flesh. He dwelt among us. He lived here." Matter of fact, the Word dwelled is what? Tabernacled. He pitched His tent here with us, with people. Lived right with us. And John says what? We saw... His glory. Do you know how many people have seen His glory? 
you can count them probably on one hand. The glory as of the only begotten from the Father full of grace and truth. They got to see His glory. I'd want to tell people too, right? You would want to tell people. So the word radiant, as we go back to Mark now, I like that word. You like that word? It was radiant. That that says a lot. Radiant. Stilbo in the Greek. His garments were like this. They would uh, describe radiant as diamonds that are glistening in the sun. You know the multifaceted diamonds? Those big diamonds in the sun, the light hits, and the brilliance just bounces off that diamond. It can almost blind you like the noonday sun. You know, you've seen reflections where they actually will knock you down, you know. Well, this is how radiant we're talking about. Not a flat white, but a blazing white, white and gleaming, linear lightning, I guess you could say. And then he says, um, exceeding white. His garments, as his glory is going through his garments, it's like a, a fuller who tried to bleach these things away, and he can't do it as good as this glory. A blazing white, glittering white, like the sun's white. Look in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. There we have the great deity of Christ shown. The writer of Hebrews says, of course in verse 2, in these last days He's spoken to us in His Son. He revealed Himself. He did it in many ways, dreams, and through the prophets and uh, different ways that God revealed Himself in the Old Testament, but it wasn't the fullest way. The fullest is this. He's spoken to an innocent Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory. Jesus is the very radiance of the glory of God. And the exact representation, the stamp is on Him of His nature. He has His very nature. He is God. He's the Son of God, but He is God. He's part of that triune God. God is flashing His glory before Him. There's the Father, and the Father is going to show up here in a very short moment. But here's the Son. Good word for Him, isn't it? The S-O-N is shining. When you think of God and His appearing, you have to think of light. And it's defined of Him, I think, in the Westminster Confession that God is light. Can you describe light? Of course, it's energy. He is the light. Whenever we live with Him for eternity, we will have no need of the sun because all the light will be radiating from Him. So when we think of light, we think of Him. Psalm 104, verse 2. I'm glad of artificial light. We can come in this building and read our Bibles and it's not be dark in here. We'll be straining our eyes. We have lights that are shining. They're brighter than just white, aren't they? Psalm 104, verse 2. Talking about God. Oh, look at verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. You like that? And then, O Lord, my God, You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. You like that? Covering Yourself with light as with a cloak. Stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. You cover yourself with light. It's like you're clothed with light. He is light. We're we're, uh, physical beings. We we have a spiritual nature. We're not operating on that spiritual level where we can see God. But the best way we can see God is through Jesus Christ. And one day we'll see Him as He is. As it says in 1 John, the one who actually saw uh, Jesus' glory, He clothed with splendor and majesty. Oh, what a majestic view we're having here. Folks, as we read this, I hope it is jumping off the page at you. This is our Lord and Savior. He's not veiled here at this moment. Jesus always had His glory. He limits Himself. 
veiled by the human flesh. He veiled himself until this very special moment. Like we said, John said, we beheld his glory. Revelation 19 is where he comes back and he will be in his full glory. We get to see that. Now, we move to verse 4. I spent a long time on that verse 3 and I know I kept talking about light and I hope I didn't over-repeat myself, but I just didn't want to just speed by that. I just want us to get a handle on this beauty. Now, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Jesus is there in His glory, and now these two individuals are there. They're appearing in like manner. In some way, somehow, God has put them in His glory. So wait a minute, I thought the uh, when we meet Him in the air, that the Old Testament saints will then do that, and then, then we who are dead in Christ, alive, will be made as far as having new physical bodies. Why are they there? Well, in that particular moment, He gave them a glorious form. However that may be, but they're there and they're real. It's not some kind of little image. This is real. I think this has to freak out the disciples. And remember, when you've been sleeping, all of a sudden you wake up, you're just not you know, with it for the first few moments. And they've got to be shaking their head. Well, are you guys seeing what I'm seeing? I mean, wow, this uh, this amazing sight. We're talking Moses, who died 1,400 years before this, and Elijah, something like about 700 years before this. Both these men of God had spoken to God on mountains. Did you know that? You remember that? Mountaintops. Moses was on Mount Sinai. Elijah talked with God on Mount Horeb. So they both had seen God's glory. They both had been on mountains and here they are here. And they both had unique departures, didn't they? Let's say something else about Elijah and Moses. If you want to raise up two of the greatest men in the Old Testament, and they're men. We don't worship men. But sometimes it's interesting just to see who God raises up. Men that would be sometimes the least likely and he uses them. These guys represent the law and the prophets. This is beautiful. Moses is the lawgiver. Elijah upholds the law in his prophecy, in his ministry to the people. Those categories. Moses was a prophet. Moses was a priest. Moses was a king, a leader of the people. He was all of those offices. Nobody else ever had those offices except Jesus Christ. He is a picture of Jesus Christ as He leads the people in the wilderness to the exodus and out. By the way, hang on to that word exodus because I'll come back to that in a moment. Because when you're thinking of Moses, what do you think of? The Exodus? That's exactly what they're talking about. But not Moses' Exodus. Elijah could stand with Moses because he fought against every violation of the law. Those people out in the wilderness. It's a shame. God's people. They lived for themselves. Very selfish. Very sinful. They were brought into the promised land. Blessed immensely. But you know what? They didn't really persevere. God judged them highly. Elijah had to come along. People like him. There's no lawgiver like Moses. And there's no prophet like Elijah. He's the greatest guardian. There's a warning. Folks, 
don't take the Lord for granted. Don't think, don't take His church for granted and all the blessings you've given, been given. You know what? Before Christ, there were really only two miracle eras. This is fascinating too. There was a time of Moses when he did miracles. Remember the snake thing? How about the ten plagues? Crossing the Red Sea? The water? A lot of miracles happening at that time. That was during the time of Moses. After the time of Moses, you don't see miracles until Elijah, the prophet. That started the prophet age. But you'll see those miracles through Elijah. Not through really the rest of the prophets, but through the time of Elijah and Elisha. Isn't that incredible? The law and the prophets. And Jesus had said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, the Word of God is so incredible. Did you know the Word of God is the best interpreter, the best teacher that we can possibly have? 5.17 Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come here to abolish it. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For all of you antinomians out there, shame on you. You know what an antinomian is? You, you want me to describe it? It's one who say, oh, I'm saved by grace. I'm justified and I can do whatever I want. It's okay. Because I'm supposed to make mistakes. And it's okay. I can be sinful. I can do whatever I want. That is an antinomian. I want to tell you what. The Scripture condemns antinomianism. And I want to tell you something else. So did the Reformers. Because they knew that you can go to extremes. You can be so legalistic to go by like the Pharisees. Or you can go on the other extreme and say, hey, listen, saved by grace. Hey, I'll do what I want to do. Antinomian. That's not a believer. An antinomian is not a Christian. Good to check ourselves, isn't it? Do we take uh, advantage of God's grace? May it never be. Romans 6. So that's kind of the news that Elijah had brought. And Jesus says, I fulfilled it. It's in me that you fulfill the law. You can't. Nobody ever can, but it's through the person of Christ. So we demonstrate His righteousness as He works in us. Don't think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. And there they are standing right there representing the law and the prophets. Moses the lawgiver. Elijah the prophet. Beautiful, isn't it? Isn't this great? And Jesus explains to the disciples that are following Him, the Emmaus disciples, what does He say? He gives them the law and the prophets. He's saying, oh, ye, you know, why are you so ignorant? Don't you know? It says this. It talks about my suffering and dying in the Old Testament, in the law and the prophets, right? And the writings, Psalms. So there they are, Moses and Elijah. They're talking to Jesus. What in the world are they talking about? Wouldn't you love to be a fly on a wall right there and say, oh man, I'm getting in on this. This is great. Moses, Elijah, the two great men of the Bible, and Jesus. I mean, what are you saying? i got to hear this. Wouldn't you want to hear that? And I know you're saying, what was it? Does Mark tell us? says they were talking with Jesus. Well, I know what they were saying. Oh, Dennis, come on. He doesn't say, how do you know what they're saying? Well, let's go to Luke 9.31. Remember our other one of our other passages? Isn't the Bible great when you put it all together? I love to do this. This is my favorite thing. How about you guys? You like this? Moses and Elijah, appearing in glory, were speaking of His departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. You guys know what that is, don't you? On the other side of the cross, isn't this simple? We're talking about the cross. The departure. The exodus. That's what the Greek word means there. It means exodus. His exodus out of this earth. 
his departure. They're talking about the exodus of departure. Moses knew about the exodus. <laughs> he knew about the exodus. Here's the fulfillment of the exodus. He's here. He's gone. But he's coming back. Jesus' death. That's what he's talking about. What's so important about the death? Well, that's how we get our sins forgiven. It's his death. He said that to them just days ago. I have to die. Oh, no, you don't. You don't have to. You're the, you're, you're the king. You can do it. Come on. As Peter says, I have to die. I have to die. For your sins to get forgiven, you have to realize that I have to die. By the way, you do too. <laughs> because of His death, people would be set free by the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, His second coming. He would redeem a people for Himself. Oh, there's part one. Hmm. Okay, part two. I think we've seen some of the best part, but there's still more. Peter has a really big idea. Peter opens his mouth. There are times when we really, if we don't know what to say, really shouldn't open our mouths. Sometimes I've said things that, why did I even say that? Well, I have to fill in the time, you know, this quiet, you know, i got to do something. And Why did you say that? Of course, Peter just has to say something. He's done this before, and we call that the foot-in-mouth disease. Because he's always having his... He had a foot-shaped mouth, by the way, right? Because he's always sticking his foot in it. He actually interrupts the conversation (laughs) that Moses and Elijah are having with Jesus. He interrupts. And in one passage, uh, he calls them... In in this section, he says, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Um, In one of the other texts, he says, Master. In another text, he says, Lord. And you say, well, what did he say? You know, somebody didn't get it right here. He probably said all three of them. Rabbi, Master, Lord. Remember... You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He calls Him everything just to make sure that He gets it all right. Rabbi, Master, Lord, you, you know, you're, you're everything. Uh, man, you're on to something now. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You've really got it now. This is what I'm talking about. You don't have to die. We've got it right here. I mean, my, the, the glory. and the, you got you got the, the lawgiver and the, and the prophet right here. Uh, it's good for us to be here. You, you betcha. Yeah, I guess so. I guess it is good, isn't it? Peter's saying, I love the... He's not saying this in Scripture. I love the light. I love the shining. Matter of fact, I love the dazzle. I love all the outward things that's going on here. It's more than just what he's seeing visibly, isn't it? He loves that. I don't like the death part. I don't like the suffering part. That doesn't sound like good news to me, but I sure like this light, dazzling thing, this brilliance. This is great. I love this. Hey, this is good for us to be here. This is what I'm talking about. Peter's on that kind of level. And don't we as people tend to be that way? We, we judge by what we see. Peter. Peter's, let's have a retreat here. We'll get right at it. We'll start building these thatch booths. Now, why does he say, let us make three tabernacles? Now, he said tabernacle a while ago. Jesus tabernacled with them. That's the same word, tabernacle. He, you know, he fleshed it out. Okay. They're saying, well, let's build some tabernacle or tents. Let's build, we'll build some tents for you guys. Tents. Tabernacles. Booths. The Feast of Booths. Oh, you want to know something? I want you to grab a hold of this. I think it's very possibly at this time, and coming up uh, in like 
September, I think, is the Feast of Booze that the uh, Israelites, the Jews, still celebrate. Some 3,500 years later, they're doing this. And they meet over in Israel and they, they build these thatched booths. Well, that's to commemorate what happened out in the wilderness as people lived in these tents or these thatched booths, tabernacles, out in the wilderness. That's what they stayed in. And they, they, they'd pack them up and move on and stay there for a while. And it was time to move. The glory of the Lord you know, was shining about in the night, whatever. Cloud by day, fire by night. They'd follow that. Boom, sit down, settle again. Put their little. It, it was a way to uh, move around. And that's how they protected themselves from the weather. And uh, so they celebrate that every year since then. Still do it today. So that's not too foreign to our thinking. And it's very possible in Jerusalem at that very time, people aliated. Aliat means to ascend up. When you go to Jerusalem, you ascend up because it's up high. Quite high plateau. Lifted up. City, it is. And then you have the mount there. The temple mount. Well, people went there. Celebrated this great feast. An amazing feast that they'd have. Booths. Peter's thinking, hey, it's that time. You're here with us. Kingdom's ready to start. Let's just make this a little bit more permanent or at least a little bit more than just straight temporary. Uh, let's hang out here for a few days. This is great. Let's have our little feast right here, all of us together. Good idea, Peter. That's not what God has in mind. Okay. Maybe Peter might have been thinking of Zechariah 14. You want to turn there for a moment if you can? Quite revealing. It's during the time that Christ comes back. And the reason I can say that in verse 3, in that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem. He even mentions, gives us directions here. Very specific. He says, by the way, that Mount of Olives, that's on the east. Of course, you go into Jerusalem, that's exactly where it will be across over there on the east side, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. I I take this to be real and literal as can be. So that half the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. And he gives a time for them fleeing. Now, um, it's it's definitely when Christ is coming back. If you read in verse fourteen one, he's talking about the day is coming, the coming for the Lord when he's going to judge. But at the same time, he's going to have his people flee in the mountains. Go on down, verse six. In that day, there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But it will come about that evening. There will be light. That's something, isn't it? And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea. What's the eastern sea? And another half toward the western sea. Well, towards the west is the Mediterranean Sea. Toward the east, the the Dead Sea? Yeah, it's going to come to life. It's going to flow right there. It will be summer as well as in winter. The Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and His name the only one. He's the only Lord. He's the only king at that time. And then he talks about Benjamin Gate, First Gate, Corner Gate, Hananel. Very specific. This is real. This is not some kind of floating cloud thing. We're talking something real here. Tangible. Uh, people living it. There will be no longer a curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Now look at this. Look at this. Um, I'm going to advance it further because I'm running out of time. Um, look at this. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations, when he comes back, if any nations are there of all the ones that are left in it, that went against Jerusalem, will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to what? Celebrate the feast of booths or tabernacles. That's what they look to. Folks, that hasn't happened yet. Jesus hasn't come back yet. I want you to study this chapter. I really want you to study hard. This is not during this time right now. 
We're talking about this is when Christ has come back and He's ruling over the earth. Remember? We keep things in a context. It's not difficult. Keep reading and you'll see. And He talks literally, names places where they're at. I mean, why would He take the time to mention places and names and then say, well, that's just a spiritual thing. Jerusalem is, we are all on the Mount Zion right now as Christians. Well, in one sense we are, but we're talking about at Benjamin's Gate, Rimmon, south of Jerusalem, the east, uh, the Mount of Olives, he, he returns back. I would take that literally, wouldn't you? So when you come about this, you're challenged because you're saying, well, that's definitely not now. And there's going to be plagues that are going to strike, and that can't be the eternal state. So when is it? I think that challenges you. I think you have to look at this. You can't just say it all spiritual because we have Christ coming back and we have a feast of booths where people come up. What happens if they don't do it? And it will be that whichever the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the feast of booths. Well, if it's not in the past because it's the time of Christ coming back literally at the Mount of Olives, which we all believe. It's in the future. It's not now. And there's, there's sin. It can't be the eternal state. What does it leave? And there are other passages we can go to. I don't have enough time. But this Feast of Booths, I think that should enlighten you. I think Peter knew exactly what the Feast of Booths was about. And there he presents, why don't we build tabernacles in his? Why would he say that? Very possibly because of that. What an idea he had. We have Moses. We have Elijah. We're ready for the kingdom now. No. This is not the time. There are many needs to be met down below. I would like to be raptured. Taken out right now. Meet him in the air. That's what it means. To be, to be lifted up. To be taken up. To meet him in the air. Rapio. That is a biblical term. That's in the Latin. Harpazo is the Greek word. It means to be snatched away, caught up, to meet Him in the air. That word is there. There are many needs, though, to be met right here. It's not time for Him to come back until He comes back. We don't know when that is. Well, you know what? Matthew 17.6 says they were fearful. They're frightened. Peter has to open up his mouth even though it would have been better to keep his mouth shut. This is what he's thinking. This is the kingdom. That's what they look to. The golden kingdom. That's nothing new. That's, that's what they've been doing. And now we get to an amazing part. Shut up, Peter. <laughs> As he is speaking, then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. While Peter was talking. Remember Peter interrupted? Interrupted Jesus and Moses and Elijah? Well, God the Father comes in and interrupts him. He first tells Peter to shut his mouth. He doesn't really say that. But it's like, that's enough, Peter. Listen. Listen. How many times do we want to tell God what to do in our prayers? This is the way it should be. Let's have the Feast of Booths now. That sounds good. Is it God's will? Yeah. Not now. Listen. Listen to me. Be still and know the voice of the Lord. Clouds have symbolized the presence of God throughout the Bible. The cloud engulfs Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Then Peter, James, and John. I don't have time to go to the Scripture passages. I have them on your outline. If you want to look at those, fantastic. There are times when God's Shekinah glory has appeared. We can think of during the time of Moses and the Exodus. And where you have the cloud by day, the fire by night. He led them that way. And then you can think the the uh, of course the tabernacle... Mount Sinai. Uh, You can think of the building of the temple. Solomon's temple. The glory of the Lord was there. Then in Ezekiel, we see a vision given to him by God where you have the glory of the Lord and then the glory of the Lord leaves the temple. 
audible voice of God. The glory of the Lord then was in Jesus. Shekinah glory, tabernacle, temple. The tabernacle again, which is Jesus. And now, where does He reside? In us. And then He will come back and will be in that fullest sense. We have the best witnesses available. We have Moses. We have Elijah. And now who? The Father. Bearing witness to Jesus Christ, death, burial, resurrection, glorification, everything. It's He. It is He. And do you know, in 2 Peter 1, I can't forget this verse. I have to start chopping off verses when I get near the end here. Uh, But that's why I try to give as many Scripture references on your outlines as I can. We're covering most of them. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter never forgot about it either. Look at this. 2 Peter 1.16. Look at this. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales. We're just not giving this up or, or uh, making this up or getting it just from some people saying, hey, I think it's this way. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but look at this. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made, made to Him by the majestic glory, what is it? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And Peter says, and we ourselves heard this utterance. It it was the voice of God the Father. It was made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. John says that in First John. Peter says it here. Wow. An audible voice. This is the same voice that spoke at Jesus' baptism. Remember that? This is my Son, whom I am well pleased. Right? Listen to Him. Then suddenly, in a split second, they're gone. They're gone. Moses and Elijah are gone. It's just Jesus. And the disciples, the Father's voice is gone. The cloud's gone. And then we're going to close it out. We're basically going to read it. Are you ready? Catch on to this, and I'll make a comment here or there. We're closing this out. As they were coming down from the mountain, He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen. They don't tell anybody. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. What we just saw? Don't tell them now. Until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Because they don't get it anyway. They don't get it. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. Well, at least now they, they, they're getting that. What does rising from the dead mean? What? 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 Well, they asked him, saying, Why is it that scribes say that Elijah must come first? Well, that's, remember, I've said that before. And of course, that's in Scripture. Elijah's going to come before the dreadful day of the Lord. They all believe that. The disciples believe that. It was taught by the uh, lawyers, the scribes. Uh, the Pharisees, right? All the religious leaders, they taught that. And they're saying, see, that's why he's not the Messiah. Elijah hasn't come yet. Does that make sense? And the disciples, that's what they're thinking. And that's what they've been told by the rabbis and such. And they're saying, okay, hey, hey, wait a minute. Okay, we just saw Elijah. Okay, we're recognizing you as the Messiah. Why is it the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He hasn't appeared to anybody else. He's appeared to us. Is He going to start appearing to people? Who knows what's going through their mind? And He said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that He will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? See, before this, all this glory in this kingdom starts, I'm going to have to die. I'm going to have to suffer. Um, how is it? You know, yeah, Elijah, that is true. He will come. You know, he's telling them it's going to be a later time. But, this is interesting. But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come in another sense. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it did to him. Disciples know who that is John the Baptist. Because he came in the spirit of Elijah. We've already touched on that, talked about that. 
It's in Scripture. Elijah was in that sense John the Baptist. Had become that way. In a spiritual sense. But there is a time before Christ comes back that will be the spirit, the power of Elijah. He's saying, so yeah, that's true. But first, the Son of Man has to suffer. Perhaps the appearance of Elijah on the mountain was the fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi. That's what they're referring to. There would be a future coming of Elijah. Just as Malachi predicted when he comes in judgment. He hasn't come in judgment yet. So they had a hard time with the cross, as you can see. They eventually got that message. It wasn't easy. And I imagine it was hard to handle the suffering. They remembered this experience. This glory And then he's saying this glory is going to come. This is just a glimpse. This is a moment. This is a preview. Have you ever seen... This is a trailer. (laughs) They call them the trailers for the movies. I don't know why they call them trailer. Trailer sounds like something that you sit in a mobile home park. Or it's it's at at the end, but a a trailer is really a preview. So I'm giving you a preview of what I'm going to look like. This, This is it. Right here, look. We beheld His glory... We were eyewitness of His majesty. We haven't seen Jesus in that way. We will. We're guaranteed. First John talks about that. But in another way, we have experienced Him. We're in His kingdom. If we trusted in who He is and what He's about and His sacrifice, that was still yet to come. We look back and we realized what happened. He died to forgive us our sins, remove the guilt, to be set free from the bondage of sin and Satan and hell and death. And man, I say, thank you, Lord, you had to go to the cross. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.